Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who's interested in growing sales. This podcast is brought to you by the Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program. Are you looking to experience a breakthrough in your team sales? Have you tried sales training in the past, but were unable to make it stick? The Criteria for Success Sales Growth Program is a year-long engagement that combines sales and leadership training, a digital sales playbook, and a coaching and accountability process that will change your sales culture and drive sustained growth. Learn more at criteriaforsuccess.com. Our theme for the month of August is handling objections. And here on the podcast, we've been talking to our guests about it. You can check out the blog for best practices, information, and advice for you and your team at criteriaforsuccess.com slash blog. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and I am excited to introduce today's guest. She is an accomplished executive coach, leadership leadership expert, and award-winning author of You Unstuck, Mastering the New Rules of Risk-Taking at Work and in Life. She was the former head of communications at media giants Universal, Sony, and Turner Broadcasting. So she had a pretty exciting executive career. And as a fun fact, she was the branding brain behind the launch of the Dr. Phil Show. She left the corporate world about 20 years ago to run her own executive coaching and consulting firm. And she is here because she has just published her latest book called The Hope Driven Leader, Harness the Power of Positivity at Work. If anybody recognized either of those big titles, you might know that our guest is Libby Gill. Thank you so much and welcome to the show, Libby. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. All right. Um, Our listeners might notice we are experiencing a little bit lower audio quality than usual. Um, This is just something that happens sometimes. So we apologize if there's any distraction. Everything that Libby has to say is really important and valuable. And so I hope everybody um, will listen on through. So Libby, I just shared some of the highlights of your bio. Obviously, you've got a lot, but I'd love it if you could introduce yourself to our listeners. Maybe tell them a little bit about where you developed a passion for business or for sales, um, and maybe talk about some of the key steps along that journey that you've taken. Sure, I'd be happy to. I uh, I put myself through college waiting tables, which was probably my first business experience, and uh, got a degree in theater and in dance. And after working as a a tap dancing bear at an amusement park and a hand model for a cat food brand, I quickly discovered that uh, I would be better off working behind the camera. So that's what I did. And I started my career at a company that had been founded by Norman Lear, who some people will remember either know or remember his shows like All of the Family. And I thought it was a great place to begin my career. It was this great mid-sized television production and distribution company, but it was almost immediately swallowed up by Columbia Pictures and then by Coca-Cola and then by Sony. And I just kept riding the wave. I just kept raising my hand. I thought, you know, I'll just volunteer and figure it out later. And I went in, in five years from being an assistant in Norman Lear's company in the PR department to heading up publicity, advertising, and promotion for Sony's television group. And that was kind of my introduction to business. And it was a rapid learning curve, I'll tell you that. I absolutely love that. I love um, just specifically when you said you always raised your hand. And I think a lot of times people think I need to wait for the exact perfect opportunity to show up in front of me. And until that happens, I'm going to stay where I am. And that idea of being willing to raise your hand and take maybe small steps or maybe a step a little bit to the side of where you thought you were going um, just drove that onward progression of your career. That's really important. It really did. And I learned very quickly to 
uh, be grateful and rely upon team members who were far more experienced than I. I was the one who was willing to stand up front and, and lead the charge, but there were people who had been in the workforce and, and specifically in that area of media relations um, far longer. So I was I was grateful to learn from them. And I, I see a lot of young leaders who are a little bit nervous to uh, to really tell the truth about what they know or what they don't know particularly. And, and that came to be pretty naturally. So uh, I learned a lot from them. Definitely. So I, I think that people might be hearing a bit about something that's really important to you in your voice. Um, so your latest book is called The Hope Driven Leader, Harness the Power of Positivity at Work. It was published back in April, but it just came out in audio format. And as people can tell from the title, it is all about hope. But what's really interesting to me is that a lot of people kind of talk about hope and it's very kind of fluffy. It's, it's just kind of viewed as the same thing as optimism. And instead of that, you take a really scientific approach to what you call hope theory. So could you tell me about hope theory? Um, maybe when or why you began researching and writing about the topic of hope? Sure. I had, like many people, I had a pretty rough upbringing in terms of uh, chaos, uh, divorce, two immediate deaths in the family, and suicide. And um, I always felt like hope was my jet fuel, that if I had hope that tomorrow would be better and that I could keep moving forward, things would be okay. And that was my sort of youthful approach to hope. And then later when I became an executive coach and, and began to study, I was interested in that idea because I saw a lot of a lot of people in the workforce who love to say things like hope is not a plan or hope is not a strategy. And yet I was seeing this disconnect with employees who felt really hopeless about the future and about opportunities for them and their teams and needed that sense of hopefulness before they could adapt those strategies or plans that would be helpful. And as I studied, I found I didn't come up with the term hope theory. It comes out of medicine and positive psychology. And it's really the science of hopefulness, looking at hope as, as having a, a fundamental belief that change is possible. And it also relies on an expectation that it is the individual that drives the outcome. So it's about linking your belief to your behaviors and moving forward based on that. That's really wonderful. And um, I, you know, a lot of times we hear um, that people who came from some of the most difficult backgrounds and, and difficult childhoods, you can either kind of buckle on, buckle under that. And a lot of times what happens is it turns into a cycle where you're repeating the problems of a previous generation or um, what it takes to get out of it. I think in your case, and you really demonstrate this, is seeing that there is potential, seeing that there is something else, that this isn't all there is. That's hope. And that's what it takes to really um, give you the energy, give you the focus that's going to help you drive out of those um, difficult circumstances. So I really like the way you said that you really need hope before you can get started on working. That doesn't mean you don't need the strategy, but if you're just sitting there kind of um, disconsolate and, and not really... Um, you know, feeling like there's any hope, any potential, why would you even bother get to work? Exactly. If, if you don't believe in your own agency, your own ability to make change and to make things happen, then it's, you're right, it's, it's impossible to get started. You've got to have that fundamental belief that you can change the outcome. 
And I wrote much earlier in my career, I wrote a book called Traveling, Hopefully. And that was the title came from a Robert Louis Stevenson quote, to travel hopefully is a better thing than to arrive. And that was my personal journey of sort of getting past all these family hardships and heartaches and, and what those do to you if you stay stuck in that story. And uh, for me, that was kind of the life's work is, is how, do I, how do I make those changes and create a better life for myself and those around me? And then eventually people began to ask me how I did that, knowing my background with mental illness and alcoholism in my family. Now, how did you get past all of that? And I thought, well, enough people asked me. I decided I would write a book about what it took for me. And then, and then the, the study of hopefulness became deeper and, and more academic, more scientific as I you know, as I evolved in both my work and life. Definitely. So I think um, one of the things that a lot of people might get confused on or might um, just find a little bit difficult is what's the difference between optimism and hope? And you have a really good um, idea around this. And can you, tell, can you tell our listeners kind of what you see as the difference between optimism and hope? Sure. And, and people are, of course, familiar with happiness, with all the happiness research and books that are out. Um, so that's pretty clear. That is a a, a a feeling that life is going well, a, a lack of, of major stressors in life and a, a general satisfaction. Optimism is an overall sense of, of things are going to turn out all right, which at its worst can be a sense of uh, rose-colored glasses. You know, no matter what happens, it's all going to be okay. And a healthy sense of optimism is sort of the half full versus the half empty, but it's not predicated on any action or situation, whereas hope is a specific outcome or desired outcome linked to a behavior. So it's what you believe and then what you do that drives the outcome. So hope is situational and specific as opposed to generalized and, and non-specific. I love that. I love the idea that hope is tied to action um, because you're right. You can be just generally kind of optimistic and you can even actually be somewhat generally pessimistic, but still see hope in a specific circumstance, in a specific situation. You can be the person who always notices the weak spot in an idea, right? Um, and always, and people might view you as being pessimistic, but that doesn't mean that you're not willing and able to actually drive toward uh, a successful result and, and really make a project come through to fruition because you still might actually see the hope for what things will end up as. And actually, by, you know, by being willing to point out the weak spots, the reason that you're doing that is that you see the hope, you see what what is possible at the end of the tunnel. And you think I want to do everything I can to make sure we get there. That's exactly right. And those people who are, are pessimists, either by nature or by job description, I mean, there are people whose jobs, like attorneys and accountants, people who are looking for errors and omissions, I mean, that's their role. But it doesn't mean that they don't see a better future. I mean, that's exactly why they're, they're pointing out and probing those weaknesses. We've got to have those people in our, our own lives and certainly in our professional circles to say, well, here's the downside or here's what could go wrong. You've got to prepare for all those things. 
Yep. And I, I maybe have a passion defense for that because I sometimes find that I play that role within a project um, and I'm never meaning to do it to shut things down, but instead to, to see what I can do to contribute to the final result. But um, as I mentioned in the introduction, in August, we're talking about responding to objections and dealing with objections you get either obviously as a salesperson, the objections that you get from prospective clients, as well as objections that you might be getting internally from uh, people within your organization. So how do you think a hope-based mindset can help individuals, um, whether they're sales reps or leaders or even teams, respond to those objections and challenges more effectively? And, and also there are sometimes the objections that come from our own minds, you know, the negative self-talk, all of those things. Absolutely. Yeah, that's sort of the first Definitely. thing to overcome. I think it's really about having... Uh, what one of the great pioneers of hope theory, a, a Harvard-trained oncologist named Dr. Jerome Groupman, who said it's about change, believing change is possible and believing that you drive the outcomes. But he also said there's a place for true hope versus false hope. False hope being this sort of wildly, you know, anything can happen, but not looking at it grounded in reality, which is true hope where you see whoa, there are going to be challenges, there are going to be hardship, there are going to be obstacles, and there are going to be objections along the way. But I've got this vision of the future that says, if I see these objections, and I, I am grounded in reality and pragmatism, and yet I'm fueled by the sense of passion that I can overcome them, then it's that combination of looking at things as they are and knowing that you can make them better. And that's that's true hope. And that is where you overcome the objections. If somebody throws an objection at you that is, you know, there's no way in terms of, of physical constraints or reality that you can overcome it. Well, you know, that's the end of that. But most of what you get in terms of a sales force are those sort of, you know, prove it to me, sell me on it, show me why you're the right person, the right product or service. And those are the objections that you get from people doing due diligence. And most of the time, if you are grounded in that sense of, of practicality, you know what to anticipate, you know how to counter those objections and to take people from where they are to where they can be with your solution. And that's really the best salespeople are the ones who who understand the, the negative point or the, the pain or the problem that their clients are in and can, in reality and truthfulness, paint that picture of the future that they can help them get to. And it's creating that emotional connection to the outcome. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure, Elizabeth, you've seen people that are former teachers or, you know, people that come from all walks of life who believe so passionately about what they are selling that all they have to do is paint the picture and point the people in the direction and their clients get it. They're on board not only with what their product or service does, but they see the future through the eyes of that salesperson who's able to make that deep emotional impact. And those to me are the best salespeople out there. Definitely. I couldn't agree more, Libby. You know, um, one of the things that we strongly believe at Criteria for Success is that there's, idea, there's this idea out there that the salesperson is responsible for handling objections, that somebody brings an objection to you and you have to handle it. You have to somehow, you know, kind of manipulate them or, or say the exact right words that are going to get them to change their mind. 
What we believe is that instead of that, what really needs to happen is they need to handle their objection. Whoever it is that has the objection is the one who needs to actually change their mindset and change where they are. And so if you do like what you're saying and you have that emotional connection that you've created with them and you've set a vision and they can align with you on that vision, they can buy in on your hope, right? They join that hope with you. Then they're going to work together with you to figure out a way to get through those objections. For example, if they say, oh, you know, we need to make sure that the software solution um, will integrate with all of our other software things. If they don't see that hope, if they don't have that vision, that might just be a, well, oh, it doesn't plug in, you know, right. I guess it's a, it's a deal breaker, not a fit. Um, versus if they say, okay, um, you know, it's really important that it fits in with our other software. This looks like this might be a little bit of a challenge. Let's figure out how can we get around that? How can we make this work? And suddenly it's a collaboration. It's a conversation and they're really building something with you. Right. And that, that's the brilliance of being able to say, Hey, here's the future. Let's figure out how to get there together. And that's, that's really what overcoming objections is all about. Just as you've said, it's, it's, it's a collaboration. Wonderful. Well, when I was thinking about talking to you and I was planning this episode, um, I knew that we were talking about handling objections and obviously hope does tie to it. But your previous book also gives, I think, a different insight into objections. So I wanted to touch on that. Um, So you won a lot of awards for You Unstuck, Mastering the New Rules of Risk-Taking at Work and in Life. One of the big things... um, topics in there was the physiological response people actually have to risk. So I would imagine that when people are taking a risk-based approach to situations, right, they're, they're taking some risks, they're getting out there and doing things. Um, sometimes I would imagine that might cause some objections, either the self-objections that you were talking about or objections from people around you. So could you talk a little bit about risk and um, how we respond to risk and how that might relate to objections? Sure. Risk is all about about managing change. It's about identifying and leading through change. And as humans, we have, you know, we're animals, but we're relatively defenseless in terms of the animal kingdom. So we have this built-in negativity bias. We are, without even realizing it, sort of scanning the horizons looking for danger. That's just part of our amygdala, the fear center of our brain that is the the least developed over centuries. It's pretty much what it was in the primitive days where we were just scanning for foes, for potential danger. Our brain still operates at that level. So when when a change arises, and this can be in yourself, the risk that you're taking, it can be in your client that you're engaging with. We're proposing something new. We're trying something different. It flags all those involuntary systems. So what happens is we have that sense of fight or flight that most people are aware of when you know you get the sweaty palms and the hair on the back of your neck stands up and you feel blood pumping out to your extremities or that nervous flutter of butterflies in the stomach and all of that is your body's autonomic nervous system preparing you either to fight or to get the heck out of the way to flee and then there's the other one that we forget about which is to freeze so it's really fight flight or freeze and those are ways that we react when we're taking a risk which is looking at danger dealing with change where in the old days looking for danger meant predators on the path or enemies ahead of you or uh, or maybe a natural disaster a lightning storm those sorts of things but 
our brain still reacts the same way, whether it's, you know, jumping into a sales call or dealing with a difficult client or being in a new situation. We still interpret that through that fight, flight, or freeze kind of framework. So when we get, can begin to see change and with that, the risks that we take to navigate change as an opportunity for growth, knowing this is how our system's going to react. And, you know, we get what I call the, the INR, the immediate negative reaction, when we just want to either shrink from taking that risk or be a little bit more timid than we need to be. But if we just take a step back and recognize, oh, this is what our body's supposed to be doing. Now it's up to me to let the rational part of my brain overcome that emotional part. Because as animals, we feel first and we think second. As much as we would love to think we make rational and logical decisions at all times, we don't. And that's why it's so important to connect with the emotional part of yourself and of the people that you're dealing with. We've got to get past that fear center onto the, hey, I like this person. Now, let me back up what they're doing with the facts. But the emotion leads the facts. Definitely. I love that. And I think that's the case in so many more situations, not just um, in your own self or, or, or when you're trying to convince people to take a risk. You know, when it comes to buying, emotional buying happens before intellectual buying happens. And so emotional reactions to objection happen before um, the intellectual ones. And so again, back to what we were talking about when it comes to hope, if you can get somebody to come on the emotional journey with you and you can share that vision with them, then you're able to work through all of the details later and you've got them as a partner as opposed to them trying, you know, if you try to build it from the intellectual side first and you try to respond with just, you know, oh, that that's wrong or I can give you stats about that. That's not nearly as compelling as when you have that really emotional connection and, and you've, um, you've kind of, you know, stepped back from maybe your initial emotional response, but you're connected in a positive emotional way. Right. You, you flip that switch for them. And, and I never set out to be a salesperson, but of course, every entrepreneur, every business owner, you know, everybody is. And I get calls about coaching from people I don't know all the time for, for me or my team members to coach. And, and that came, I figured that out intuitively before I had really studied up and, and taken advantage of, of courses like yours and your podcast that teach these sorts of methods and techniques, both through the, the science and the emotion of it, is that I've got to paint that picture of, you know, where are you now and where are you stuck and what can you see for yourself? I've got to take my coaching clients or coaching prospects to that place of, oh, this is what's possible. Oh, this is what I, and sometimes it's me seeing more for them than they can see for themselves. That's, that's the stuck part. They're stuck in their own, uh, their own sort of mindset and their own set of experiences without recognizing, whoa, there's a bigger world out there. There's a bigger game you can play. So when you, you really grab people by that emotion and, and, and help them see the future, then, then, you know, then it, then it's a matter of, of kind of filling in the blanks. But if you're not able to do that, it really is kind of game over. So you, you've got to legitimately see a better way to that solution. 
Definitely. Um, one thing I always love to ask people about is kind of things that they've learned or observed lately. So what's something that you've seen years that has changed how you think about business? Well, one thing I really see right now in the workplace is the influence of the, the multi-generational workplace. And, and almost everywhere I go, every time I go speak at a conference or work with my coaching clients, there is this uh, sort of sense that, you know, all the, there's this millennials are taking over the world. And, and sometimes the boomers and the, the older than millennial um, leaders are just not getting on the wavelength. So there's a lot, and, and maybe there is a selling component to that is we've got to help people see from multiple angles. So there's a lot. I'm more of an individualist than I am a, a generationalist, but certainly the millennials have, have, and now Gen Z right behind them, have grown up with a different worldview than boomers like me have grown up. It's, it's The world has changed dramatically from when I entered the workplace to people who are entering the workplace now. And again, we've got to sort of counter those objections, open up our scope and see the people that think, oh, gosh, they're all coming at me as entitled, which, frankly, uh, millennials are, are getting tired of hearing as, as well they should be. Um, we've got to see what's the worldview? How does it change? And how do I, as a manager or leader of generations who are significantly younger and have had a different experience entering the workforce, what are they? What do I need to see about what they're feeling and what they're experiencing? And then what do I have to teach them about how to um, work with their best instincts, which are that sense of purposefulness and team, uh, that, that ability to work fluidly in teams that I think a lot of um, younger generations are bringing to the table. So it's, it's really sort of countering our own objections about, gee, that's not the way we did it, or even millennials thinking that's not the way I want to do it, and finding that commonality of how do, you, how do you grow as individuals and how do you build the culture and the organization? I love that. Um, I am pretty much the prototypical millennial. I, you know, I was a high school class of 2000. So I think that's kind of where the, they came up with the term. And it, it is always really funny to me to see the different kinds of um, the different kinds of kind of expectations or um, things that they how they describe millennials. It can be wildly different um, from you know, what I see in people. Um, and then we have a team that has a lot of people from Gen Z. And um, as you said, there are differences. And a lot of times it can be very easy to think, oh, the way I want to do things makes sense. And that's kind of how the world is. And to recognize that, first of all, everybody does see the world differently. And like you said, it is more of an individual than a generational, but there, there might be some characteristics of a generation. But then to figure out, um, how can we get on the same page? How can we really align on the same goals and and really work together toward that and then take the benefits of your experience as a Gen Z person, right. you know, the experience, the benefits of your experience as a, as a boomer, or Gen X or greatest generation or whatever you happen to be and actually take the value of that and pull it together as opposed to viewing it as a negative that you have to work around. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a little lazy when we, we take the label as gospel and just go, oh, they're all entitled or, oh, they're all stuck in their ways and they don't understand technology. Those are sort of stereotypes. And there's always a little truth in some of these stereotypes, but it's an easy way out as opposed to saying, 
let me figure out what really gets this person excited and and how to engage them. And something I think a lot of the the older generation leaders sometimes miss when they think somebody's entitled or they're speaking up too much is, you know, let them know it doesn't have to be done the way it was when you entered the workforce, but appropriate workplace etiquette, what your culture stands for, what are the norms of your business place? There's nothing wrong with sharing those things. And sometimes people forget what's in my mind and what's clear to me is not necessarily clear to any other people. And that includes your own generation. So one thing I should put this on a sampler somewhere is don't overlook the obvious. If there's something that you want to enforce as a way of being in your workplace, You've got to voice it. You've got to state it. You've got to model it. You can't just assume everybody knows what you know. And um, and that's the way people learn from one another across generations. Definitely. And I think it's so important. And this is one of those ways that people with more experience can be um, of huge value to younger generations is to say, okay, I see that you have you have something that you want to say. You have an idea that you want to share. And there might be norms of your generation of of how you think you need to share that. There might be terms that you're using or there might be methods of communication that make sense to you. But what I can help you do is say, hey, that doesn't necessarily get the effect that you're looking for in our culture, in our organization. So instead, take that exact message that you have and I'll tell you how to share that message in a way that people will actually be able to hear it as opposed to getting all caught up in um, you know, your method of communication. And then you're really getting together on that common ground. And that's a huge benefit that you're adding to that person. You're so right. It's people want to learn. And, and that is one thing that is uh, stereotypical, but I'm finding to be true in a positive way is that millennial, younger generations want to learn. They want benefit of your experience. And I just posted a clip on my YouTube channel talking about a um, a leader who had a, you know, a huge project and a lot of moving parts and someone very junior on the team, once it was over, wanted to come in and give not, not his boss, but his boss's boss's boss feedback on you know, how it was from his point of view. Now, that may or may not be how it's been done in your workplace. And it's one of those things where you might later say, hey, you know, when you want to do that kind of thing, it's a it's a respectful thing to give your own supervisor a heads up. I want to go share this feedback. Uh, and, and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe something that person might not have, have thought of. And it's it may not be a rule that's written in stone, but it could be a better outcome for them if they said, hey, is it appropriate for me to share this feedback? And what's the best way to do it as opposed to, you know, knocking on the chairman of the board's office door and, you know, coming in and saying, I got a few things to tell you. You know, there there are ways things can be done. And if you don't want to do things that way, maybe that's okay in your work setting, but you can benefit from from learning from others. So what's, what's the best way to get my message across? What's the best way to get my voice heard? Uh, when is it appropriate to speak up? And when is it better if I sit back and listen? And you don't learn those things on day one on the job. And, and sometimes it can take, you know, it can take a few years and some hard knocks to figure out what's the, the best, meaning the most effective way to contribute. Definitely. Because I do think a lot of times people that are coming in with a fresh perspective might notice things that we with our jaded eyes aren't noticing. 
And so their message might actually be incredibly valuable. And yet by the way they're communicating their message, it's not getting heard in a way that's effective. And so if you can help them share that message in a way that's going to work, that's also um, an example to that younger person of, hey, you know, these older generations aren't, you know, aren't lacking knowledge. They can help me. And, and you're really developing a relationship. You're developing um, kind of a mentor relationship that you might be adding value to them in that way. And that's beneficial for both of you. Yeah, as opposed to assuming, hey, this is the way it was done when I came up the ladder. And I'm assuming it's it's the same way 30 years later. But the world has changed so dramatically that you, we can't make those assumptions that the workplace is the same. It's Things are evolving very quickly. And it's to everybody's benefit to communicate and collaborate and share kind of let's build our best practices together. How do we want to make this work for everyone? Um it's an interesting shift, and I, I think this is this along with things like AI and robotics or the, the the rapid changes and acceleration in our world. I mean, just things as simple as you know, when I speak, I'll sometimes say, you know, we never thought we'd live in a world where you would hop into some stranger's Prius or Honda Civic to go to the airport, and yet it happens about you know fifteen million times a day. <laughs> um, so. That's just one example. It's the way we live our lives now. Definitely. Well, um, one of my favorite ways to stay up on uh, kind of new ideas and, and get exposed to new things, as well as to stay in touch with those old classic principles as books. And I find that through reading, I'm exposed to new perspectives that I don't have. But there are also some just really important classic books that, that remind me of, of the basics of what I need to know. So what are some of your favorite books, whether they're related to business or sales or even personal growth and achievement? Well, there's one that I really love, and I think that it affects all of those things. And I'm always a student of, of what motivates people to actually make significant change. And there's a book by a journalist named Alan Deutschman who wrote a book called Change or Die. And it, the premise, it started with a study of, of patients, medical patients, who were told if they did not make lifestyle changes, they would die in about two years. You know, it was things like overeating, over drinking, all the things we know. Mm -hmm. And yet only about 10% of people decide to make those changes. And it's just shocking. So he wrote a whole book about where he pointed out some, some amazing examples of people, people and organizations that motivated these very dramatic changes. And what was it? And it all starts with emotion and grabbing people by the, by the heart before they get them by the intellect, just as you were saying, Elizabeth. And that book is, a, is just a great example to me of, of what it takes and some of the unique individuals who have done that. And another one that's just sort of fundamental on this topic of hopefulness um, is a book called uh, The Anatomy of Hope. And it's written by the fellow I mentioned, Dr. Jerome Groupman. And it really looks at the science of hope and coming out of the medical community where it started in, in placebo trials and you know people that were able to change their lives 
because of sheer belief that, that they could change. Now, it didn't mean there was anything magical about the placebo necessarily, but it meant that it affected the person's mindset so greatly they were willing to do the work, whether that was physical therapy or rehab or whatever it was to, to drive the outcome. And that to me is, is it's such a fascinating, it's a great read. It's, it's layman's terms and really informs just your thinking about the power of the mind. In, in dire circumstances. Yeah, I um, just over the last couple of months have done a lot of reading and listening to podcasts, especially about placebo effects. You mentioned that. And it is amazing how powerful our mind is. There was the story that I heard, um, and I think this may have been on the podcast Hidden Brain. I will actually look this up and I will include a link in the show notes for our listeners if you want to hear. But there was a woman who had experienced um, significant problems with her digestive system. And what they've actually been able to prove, she went into a study where she knew she was taking a placebo and she experienced results. And they, the, thought of placebo theory for a long time had been, oh, you've got to kind of trick people, right, into, into taking some placebo, and they think they've got, um, they think they've got uh, a cure. But the placebo effect is, even, is, is powerful enough to even overcome knowing that you're taking a placebo. And it's just amazing how much our minds control both our physical bodies when it comes to things like the placebo effect, sure. as well as the actions that we take and, and how we interact with people. And it's really all about that hope. You're so right. And it, it's mind blowing and it's so measurable, which is so interesting. In my book, I mean, Hope Theory started with a fellow, a positive psychologist named Dr. Rick Snyder at the University of Kansas, where he went on sabbatical and decided he would read up on the scientific and academic literature on hope only to discover there was none. So he created any, any, he figured it was because it had not been measured or people assumed it was unmeasurable. So like any good social scientist, he built a scale called the adult situational hope scale, uh, which I had the good fortune to be able to recreate. As one does. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's in my book and it's 12 questions that measure your, your, your sense of your own agency, your ability to make these changes, the things that you do, um, in order to make change happen. And it's, it's a, in fact, readers can go to my resources page on my website, or they can go download a chapter, uh, the first chapter of the book on my, on my um, website at LibbyGill.com. Because uh, to me, it's just so fascinating what you're saying. There are so many interesting studies about just the power of the brain. And it's not woo-woo mysticism. It's that we evoke these physiological changes. We, we add endorphins and enkephalins that, that suppress our pain response and boost our immune system. I mean, that's what hope can do. We can, we can change our body and brain chemistry. It's, it's really amazing. So um, to, to ask one of the questions we always like to ask, we are always looking for tips and tricks and um, actionable things that our listeners can add to their personal playbooks for success. So is there a tip that you would recommend for our listeners? Well, here's what I use. I use this in my own life and when I started coaching um, many years ago, and, and I just refer to it. It's in my book, You Unstuck, called the Clarify, Simplify, Execute Method. And it is simply when you're starting out on a project or you're, you're off track and you want to get back to the, the clearest way to see your way through, just these three steps. 
clarify the vision. What is the outcome? I mean, you knew, Elizabeth, what is the outcome of this podcast? You know exactly what you, what it is you want to offer listeners. I love it when people get on a phone call and say, the purpose of this call is, or the purpose of this meeting is, but clarify the vision, even if that's a broad one-year vision. Next, simplify the pathway. Figure out what you need to get out of the way in terms of obstacles, time wasters, the wrong people. Bring in what you do need that you know will drive that outcome. Keep it as simple and clear as you can, and then you got to execute. And that's where it all comes down. And as, as your listeners well know, you've got to execute that plan, whether it's a sales plan, a strategic plan, a leadership, a coaching plan. You've got to make it happen and keep it measurable, accountable, hold yourself to it. It's got to be yes or no. You did it or you didn't. If you got halfway there, what's going to get you the other 50% of the way there? So that to me is that clarify, simplify, execute. That's what drives everything for me. I absolutely love that. So simple, but it's really easy to see when you mention those three things, which are the areas that you struggle with the most? You know, are you are you good at clarifying but bad at simplifying? And you try to jump right from clarifying to executing um, or vice versa. And so really thinking through just simple three steps that, that we can all understand. It's just one of those things that people always assume they're doing. But if you can't articulate it, you can't write it down, you haven't actually done it. Definitely. Um, like you said, it, it's, it's almost what I love are things that um, seem almost like it's, it's a mental process that happens automatically, but we never take the time to spell it out and, and think through it. And what happens is when we actually do, we can recognize this is a process and maybe I'm not actually following the full process. You know, if, if I, if I want to think through problems, just to have a system, it, it can always be helpful. So if you wanted people to learn more about you and your work, Libby, where should they go? I know you mentioned a couple of resources already. Sure. They can just go to my website at LibbyGill.com. They can get that first chapter of the Hope Driven Leader or go over to the resources section. There's all kinds of goodies that people can grab, whatever appeals to them. Wonderful. Well, I have really enjoyed our conversation today, Libby. I've got a lot of ideas um, that I'll be taking back and, and really applying for myself. And I'm sure all of our listeners do. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. All right. And thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything that we've been talking about at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 179. Tune in next week for our roundtable discussion, where we will continue talking about handling objections. And in the meantime, check out this Friday's inspirational episode, where Laura is sharing a great quote that is sure to inspire you. As a reminder, if you have feedback, topics, questions you'd like us to address, or um, guests that you would recommend that we speak to, you can reach us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. If you are enjoying the show, we absolutely would love to hear about it. So please recommend us to a friend, subscribe, wherever you're listening. And then if you could leave us a rating or a review, that's incredibly helpful for us. Remember to follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore sales. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, and me, Elizabeth Frank. Happy selling!